Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up on today's programme, Priska Amstutz is here, also Marcus Schögel, but Priska is around the table. She is the Editorial Director, Innovation Director at the Tagus Anzeiger. Now, good morning. Good morning, Tyler. What do you have for us? Uh, what have you seen in the papers today? I have seen something in the paper that I've seen before a few days. Um, I spent some hours at Lindenhof. It's a very touristy place in the middle of Zurich. Very beautiful. And I saw uh, a man uh, listening to... Or I hear a man listening to Metallica very loudly on a boombox, scaring away Asian tourists. And I thought of, of if, and I thought if this is a measurement to keep away the tourism. So I read up on some over-tourism strategies in the papers. <laughs> very good. We'll be dissecting some of those today. Also, we'll have the latest news from Istanbul. I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith and I'll be joining from Istanbul to speak about three huge issues affecting Turkey this week. The economy, refugees and the heat wave. Also, we'll speak to our Guy Delaney, our man in the Balkans. And of course, Spain heads to the polls today with a country possibly seeing a far-right party enter government for the first time in nearly half a century. It's the 23rd of July, 2023. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. A very sunny good morning uh, from an absolutely beautiful uh, Zurich. Very happy to say that, of course, as you heard in the intro to the show, uh, Prishka Amstutz is here. Uh, also, Marcus Sugal. Good morning to both of you. Very nice to see you. Good morning. Everyone feeling sunny this morning? Very. Okay, good. Uh, Marcus, tell us, you, uh, of course, uh, regular listeners uh, will know that uh, you're at uh, St. Gallen University and you're teaching next generation, future generations, all about the world of, uh, and the worlds of, of marketing and branding. But of course, your young charges, they're, they're all on vacation uh, right now. They're heading back to school, I would imagine, uh, reasonably, well, reasonably soon. I guess they've got another month or so. Oh, well, we've got until mid of September until they're coming back. So. Okay, so you've got loads of time. They, they've yeah. got lo- loads of time yeah. uh, as well. Uh, but if we, um, well, maybe today, and I was saying to uh, my, my colleague, Emma Nelson, back in London, who we'll bring in in a moment, uh, because we, we do want to, of course, talk about what are the marketing stories of the week, which would be Barbie uh, as well, uh, in case yes. who knows, it has hit screens. Yeah, it has. And um, I think this combination of having Barbie and Oppenheimer at the same day and looking at it from the industry perspective of the strikes that we have and the idea that is still behind those blockbuster, blockbusting movies is it still coming back like they all hope regarding Mission Impossible. And I think it's a very interesting time to see where the business model of Hollywood is still, still prevailing or not. Indeed. Uh, Priska, and just again, before we went on air as well, you've not seen the film yet uh, but of course I, I resisted uh, from you know from from reading anything. I, I there was a I was on the t- uh, on the TGV coming back from Paris the other day. I thought, okay, should I read this big New York Times story about it? I thought, no, I'm going to refrain from diving in. Uh, have you been reading reviews or anything so far? I have reading a ton of reviews, and I'm a big Greta Gerwig fan, so she's a woman crush of mine for ages. So I I couldn't help but read all the reviews, but I haven't seen it. But after reading your column and your dissection. I will go tomorrow. <laughs> I, I had to dissect it. I feel actually I do need to. Uh, I, I, well, I, I think there's probably a number of my colleagues who've uh, who've seen the film uh, already. But uh, I know that our Emma Nelson back in London uh, has seen uh, the film with uh, one of our other colleagues. Am I going to bring you in uh, right now on this uh, as well? Thoughts, comments, uh, you know, sh- shared views, maybe uh, on on what you thought. Um, it- 
It's one of those most surprising films that you expect that you're going to get candy floss for an hour and a half, but it gets very deep very quickly. And then you come out of the film going, what have I just seen? It's absolutely bizarre and bananas, but totally brilliant. And I agree with your point, Tyler, about having to see it more than once, because you need to see it, A, for the way that it's done, and then you need to see it for the for the marketing, in it, which is very, very clever um, and quite subtle, too, apart from two glaring moments when you, when you see two big brands. Um, and then I just suddenly thought, also, this is really not for kids. Um, I took my, my 11-year-old joined us to watch it and he came out and said he didn't understand a word of it. And frankly, I'm quite pleased because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a film made for people who are at least 35 plus. But there's a really good point made by um, a very good columnist called Stuart Heritage in, uh, in The Guardian this week who says, if you're thinking of doing Barbenheimer, do it Barbie first and then Oppenheimer and leave 24 hours because he said if you watch Oppenheimer first and then do Barbie straight off the back of it he says it's like being at your mother's funeral and then a bunch of clowns turn up it's absolutely (laughs) mind-boggling well, I, just Marcus, the point that you had at, at the start as well, which, you know, on, on one side, you've got these, these two mega blockbusters. And of course, maybe we, we could say over the last few years, maybe the, the, the studios thought that they were bringing out, whether it's a duo, a trio of, of films that was going to, you know, that was going to deliver this level of hype. Uh, so I'm wondering how much, it's clearly it's not in lockstep, but Marcus, I'll start with you. Do you think this is also the moment that cinemas need um, because the comment I made in my column was that you know this seems to be the moment to get people out of their streaming coma uh, and to have a sense of occasion to to get back out there again. Yeah, and I think this is what we saw this year with all the movies that were coming out that seemed to be a blockbuster. If you look at Mission Impossible and uh, but take it a little bit back when you, when you think about Top Gun was delayed for one and a half years just to bring it out as a big movie, and the idea of having blockbusters again as the one winning form formula that you need in in Hollywood I still think it's not only and exactly the cinemas need something like the case for their business model in the next let's say three to five years but I don't know if this this whole idea of saying it's the one movie it's the marketing around the movie it's the the, the selling of the brands it's all the sponsorship that brings back to life something that was gone for years because we learned to consume differently and hopefully it's a sign for good writers and good scripts coming up and not just taking a video game figure into a movie that might be one th- something but i'm not quite sure if you shouldn't be thinking ahead i think the strike that the that the writers and the actors are doing is more push forward and saying hey guys we are running in so many troubles we will have artificial generated sidekicks we will have artificial generated um, sceneries and all that stuff within a month and i think this discussion is much much more important behind it than just looking at filling up the cinemas and going back to an old business model. Indeed. Uh, I was saying, uh, Prisca, at the start that, and Emma, you, you, this is this would have been one of those moments where your your head would have blown off um, because uh, listeners, you will know that Emma was here a few weeks ago, uh, absolutely sort of delighting in being in Zurich uh, in summertime, but the Allianz Cinema on the lake with a screen that sort of comes up from the lake, it's, it is one of those incredible moments, I was saying, of architectural, uh, cultural intervention uh, in in a city. And I'm just wondering with with Prisca, that sense of occasion as well, the fact that you want to go to the cinema to to see this, aside from the fact that, you know, that you like Greta and all of her work as well. um, Is is that also what we need culturally right now or or pop culturally maybe? Yes, I think very much so. 
And uh, also, I mean, the Allianz Cinema was probably the most beautiful setting to see it. But also we saw all these pictures of people getting dressed in pink, all pink. And as a side note, I'm a bit disappointed to hear that it's not a good movie for kids because my children are ready to go out pink dressed, even my son. So I have to tell them that maybe I will go alone <laughs> and check it first if it's really for them. But um, side note closed, I think um, this kind of events, I mean, we haven't seen it in a very long time it's like going to a pop concert and sharing impressions and looking forward to it and drink, uh, drinking a pink drink and it's kind of a celebration of of um, of course uh, an icon but a commercial icon but also of a movie and of anticipation i think it, it's true and and that that was as you you indeed you painted the picture uh you know completely right it was it was amazing how people how many people wanted to participate in this uh and and as i sort of mentioned in my column it was it reminded me of sort of sing-along sound of music people uh, dressed up as, as as nuns and in later hosen and other things <laughs> to, uh to go and sing along with julie andrews just uh, emma uh, very quickly um as as a mother of uh a youngish son uh not, not but I, you're right. It's not one for children, but it's certainly not one even. I, I'm not sure how a young boy would feel about that film because uh, young boys don't get a look in at all. Um, but I think you would sort of leave that as well, thinking, hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, well, there's an awful lot of hmm. Um, and you're right, actually. When we moved out of the cinema, I said to to, to our friend Gillian, I said, "There's no, there's no space for." It, it just seems that Barbie was marketed for, for for little girls in that film, and so there's space for for Barbie Barbie being attractive to all kinds of people when they're growing up. Um, but no, I think I think it's it's one of those things that we're going to have to sort of learn very very quickly that um, that that this film is really not for kids. You have to be 35 plus. You have to have a certain amount of uh, you have to be a bit knowing to, to go into it. But I know you mentioned in your column the fact that there's loads of issues that, that are being thrown up and discussed here, which are often in my view, taken very taken in a really, really serious approach and, you know, the role of men and toxic masculinity and whatever you want to call it. Actually, if you're going to teach kids about this or if you're going to teach young people about it, do it with Ryan Gosling doing silly dances because it's the, it, I would say it's probably the best way of teaching young people about serious issues without making it really, really difficult for them. Um, and it's also just completely bonkers. <laughs> no, ab absolutely. And uh, I was I was quite happy to dissect in a week that, of course, that we see that uh, the Commonwealth Games hang in the balance. Uh, but, you know, really, the, the, the three male leads out of Barbie land, uh, not to mention, of course, Margot Robbie, it, it's a, a fantastic Commonwealth lineup. It's it's a it's a Canadian and Aussie extravaganza. I don't I really honestly don't think that anyone's looking at their passports when they're watching Ryan Gosling. No, well, you <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, but of course, you know, as, as Canadians, we're, we're very, we're very proud of one, one or two. Well, we've got two Ryans, right? Of course, you know, one is making a bit of a football land grab uh, in the UK as well. Emma, we should probably head to the Balkans uh, right now. Our guy Delaney is standing uh, by there. I believe you're in Ljubljana, unless you're uh, on a, a sunny stretch of coast somewhere. But good morning, guy. Hi, I'm in Ljubljana for the moment, but I'm uh, flying off to uh, Japan uh, later on today. So that was a much delayed trip. Uh, that we were going to make about three and a half years ago, and we all know what happened then. So uh, a long, long flight uh, coming up later today, Tyler. And, and we will. Uh, we know that that's definitely not direct non-stop. I don't, I don't believe there's a Ljubljana Narita 
uh, direct nonstop, no, is there? No, no, no. We're going via Dubai, and uh, then you get uh, that, that lovely sort of nine-hour layover in Dubai, which is just not long enough to make it through customs into the complimentary hotel and then back the other way um, when you've got to wake up after what, I don't know, you could probably get about two hours sleep before we have to uh, turn around and go back to the airport. So looking forward to that. Well, hopefully you'll be checking in with our, our Fiona Wilson if she happens to be uh, uh, at the Bureau in, in Tokyo. I think she's still there, but maybe, maybe she's oh, already... Most definitely. You know, we've okay, already good. arranged to see each other next week. Excellent, guys. So you're, you're um, of course, escaping uh, the, the world of, of the Balkans. Uh, but what stories are you leaving behind? Uh, or what's, what's bubbling up right now? Well, I think it's quite interesting that we still had lots of protests in Serbia over the past couple of days. And uh, this has been going on since May when we had the two mass shootings um, in Serbia. And in, in reaction to that, uh, there was a, a public outpouring which, which took the form of these rallies which, which were under the banner Serbia Against Violence. And they've sort of morphed, to be honest with you, into more of a, a regular opposition rally. And I thought, to be frank, that they would fizzle out as we got into the summer and everybody in Serbia heads for the coast in Greece. Uh, but uh, they've kept on going, not just in Belgrade, where certainly thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were on the streets yesterday, but also in other big cities like Novi Sad and Niš. Uh, we've been seeing people turning out there as well. So that's quite interesting to see this movement sustaining through the summer when people are generally um, sunbathing on the beaches of Greece rather than getting involved in protests on the, the streets of Serbian cities. And with protests like this guy that, that run and run, has there been also an evolution in the sentiment uh, as well, the, the, the core issues, or have you seen drift of other people attach their wagons uh, to this protest as well? There have certainly been people trying to attach their wagons to it. So we've seen some infiltration by far-right nationalists. Uh, that's taken place. As I said originally, it was, I think, genuinely a fairly spontaneous outpouring of grief. And that now has been co-opted fairly squarely by opposition parties. But it's also had an effect on what the opposition parties themselves are doing. As we've had these protests taking place in different cities across Serbia, different civic movements in these cities have been joining in. And now they've actually joined together to form a new political movement, which is called the Green Left Front. And that's quite interesting because the main issue that we've had in Serbia regarding its democracy in the past 10 or 11 years or so has been there hasn't been a credible, coherent opposition. It's all been atomized. It's been based around individuals. There's been a lot of ego and not much in the way of a coherent offer for voters. So now to have a, a new green left front forming, it's not necessarily going to be the answer to a sort of coherent opposition that the people will feel they can vote for rather than vote for the progressive party of president alexander vucic but it shows that at least that element of the political opposition is getting their act together joining together and presenting something coherent that voters whenever the next election comes and it could be within months are going to be able to see as a proper proposition that's available on a national basis and are not just local single issue based causes God, let's head to the coast uh, right now, because as you said, of course, this, this is the time uh, that, of course, the, uh, the, the deck chairs and, and of course, um, the, the sand real estate and the rock real estate along the coast of the Adriatic, uh, yeah, is, is rather challenged. Uh, what's happening in Croatia? Well, it's mostly rock, let's face it, in Croatia. If you find a sandy beach in, in Croatia, you're extremely delighted. They do exist, but uh, you do see people contorting themselves into the most extraordinary positions on the rocks of the Adriatic coast uh, in order to, I don't know, do you call that relaxing? Um, when you <laughs> <can> <laughs> some, some might like it. 
I mean, one of the hottest selling items in, in the local supermarkets is the, in the, 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 the rock mattresses, basically, that you can lie on um, without uh, things protruding into your nether regions. But, you know, in terms of the crust for Croats, that's becoming problematic. So there was a survey out just this week, uh, which shows that uh, four out of ten Croats can't afford to go to the beach at home anymore uh, because they're, they're being priced out. And this was a, a pan-European survey. To what degree can, can Europeans, people in the EU, afford uh, a week away during the summer? And Croats were ranking pretty lowly in, in, that, in that survey in terms of the numbers that, uh, that, that could afford a week away. I think only Romanians, Bulgarians and Greeks fared worst in, worse in the EU 27. And that's reflecting what I've found when I've been in, on the Croatian coast recently that people have been talking about how much more expensive it's becoming. Uh, they've entered Schengen this year. They've, uh, uh, they've acceded to the euro. They've adopted the euro at last. And that has seen a lot of the prices, surprise, surprise, shoot up. This whole idea that prices would be protected when they switch from the kuna to the euro, that people wouldn't be able to pull a fast one. Well, I, I can assure you that the, uh, that the prices of a sunbed and an umbrella on the, uh, the Croatian coast are considerably higher now than when you were paying in kuna. I was going to say as well, um, it must be telling, okay, you're not, you're not in Croatia, but you're just across the border guy. It must be something when the Delaney family decides that actually Japan becomes a yes. cheaper prop- proposition. Of course, the yen is incredibly we, low right now, yeah. uh, but, but it's true, isn't it? Um, and I think this is one of the interesting you know, dynamics that's happening with, with travel at, at the moment. Uh, you know, who is staying home? Uh, and, and in this case, you said even people can't even afford to go to the coast uh, in Croatia. And other people just thinking that the prices have become so ridiculous that, uh, that they're, not going to get, go, not, they're not going to go further afield. Well, what, what's a, this is the thing. What is the point of going to the Croatian coast? And for a long time, it was the fact that you've got the Adriatic Sea, which is beautiful, and you've got a, a good value for money. That, that was the proposition on the, the Croatian coast for an awfully long time, because to be frank, the infrastructure wasn't amazing. Transport around the coast was you know, fairly difficult, and the, the hospitality industry was largely based around private rooms. So you weren't going to have luxury stays on the Croatian coast. That wasn't really what was the appeal. The appeal was it was a, a quick, cheap getaway for largely people in Central Europe, you know, Austria, Germany. Uh, they, they were heading to the Croatian coast, as were other people from the former Yugoslavia. Now, that proposition seems to be changing. And of course, people will question whether the Croatia is the best option. You've seen Albania uh, increasing its, 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 its numbers quite massively over the past few years, as people have said, well, that's the Adriatic coast as well. And we can get what we need from the Adriatic coast a lot cheaper in Albania than we can in Croatia with, with uh, m- m- less of the crowd as well. So uh, whether they'll decide that jumping on the, the plane to Japan as we're doing and heading first for Kamakura for a bit of surfing, um, that might be a bit of a reach. I just want to bring Priska back in because at the start of the program, she, she was talking about uh, people in, in, a, in, in a corner of Zurich uh, uh, near the Lindenhof. Uh, and you said you, you heard someone, you know, there was Metallica blasting uh, out, of, out of a speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, well, whether they were Chinese or Korean, but certainly <coughs> Asian, Asian tourists running, running for cover. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, this guy was sitting there at the prime spot, really, on, up on the front where you have this beautiful view of the, of the river Lima and of the Großmünster and he was just looking at the view and had a very big boombox next to him <laughs> blasting Metallica and the like so and it went on for hours and 
you know, I think the Swiss people are too... They would never go up and tell a guy like this to shut it down because they were very polite. And the Asian tourists are probably quite similar in that... Um, um, in, the, in this... Um, Respect somehow. Respect, yes. Yeah. So it was so funny to watch. They they arrived in Thropes on Lindenhof, took many pictures and videos. and With, went, a, with a Metallica soundtrack. <laughs> with a Metallica soundtrack. So do you think there was something subversive around this? Because, of course, as you know, I was going to say, there, you know, there is almost this sort of gentle uprising all over Europe because of these cr the crazy spike in prices. And then people just, yeah, of course, seeing cities, you know, invaded, but it kind of reinvaded in a way that... Yeah, we maybe we've never seen before by tourists. Yes, <clears throat> sorry. I, I think it wasn't probably very rebellious. <laughs> he also drank, I think, um, several glasses of white wine. He had also cool cooler with him, so, so he was well prepared. <laughs> he was good. well prepared. Have a lovely uh, afternoon of white wine and Metallica on Lindenhof. It's the place probably. But uh, I've read uh, I've read different articles uh, in the last few days about measurements uh, for tourism in in urban cities, which have has developed much more than tourism in general. I think it was the 90s with the cheap flights and the train connections and the cities getting safer. So I think Barcelona has like it's tremendous. It's it's crazy. And Amsterdam has started to um, to to run a campaign that's called "Stay Away." So they publish <laughs> videos of. Um, of uh, men on stag nights getting arrested, <laughs> and the claim is, if you want to spend, if you want to spend a messy night, stay away or something like that. So I think, other than raising tourist tax, this is one measurement, of course. And I, th I think it's really crazy because tourist tax is like five euros in Paris for a hotel for a thousand euros upward and it gets cheaper tourism tax so if you stay in a four-star hotel it's two euros 80 or so in england london has none manchester is the only city who has a tourist tax of a pound per which is yeah which is which is remarkable when you think about of course yeah coffers wanting to be filled uh, an underfunded nhs etc et mm -hmm. guy i just wanted to to ask you i mean is is this okay aside from the, the story in croatia is this a conversation or people you know, if, if I'm a tourism minister or I'm running uh, the tourism board for my city, am I looking at Amsterdam saying, fine, you know what, if you don't want people coming to your city, we're, act, we're happy to have people coming to, to Tirana. Uh, we're happy to have people in Zagreb. Well, it, uh, it really is a question of, of gaining the balance. If, if you're looking at Croatia, they rely on tourism for their, for their GDP. More than a fifth of it comes from tourism. So you can't suddenly decide, right, we're going to shut them all out because you'd be shutting the economy down. And, and they're very much aware of that. Uh, so they, what they, a lot of the conversations that I've heard in Croatia are about trying to move it up the value chain. Okay, if it's going to get more expensive, then do we need to think about changing our offer, making our offer a, a bit more exclusive and making it more about the quality that we're offering? And if that brings fewer visits, if we've managed to increase the quality and increase the money that they're bringing in, increase the length of stay, and increase how much each visitor is spending in Croatia, maybe that's a win. I think at the moment, Tirana um, and the, the coast in, in Albania, where there's Vlora, Doras, any of the other places, uh, they're just delighted that they're attracting the customer at the moment because uh, a few years ago, their tourism campaign uh, was called 
be taken by Albania, and uh, they were taking the mickey out of themselves and, and the image that Albania had. <laughs> and, uh, and now more and more, you just see all the time in the international press, you know, Albanian beaches, that's the place to be, and all these articles about it being the great new spot in Europe. And I think they're just enjoying that contrast at the moment, especially when you consider all the other no- news stories uh, that we've been getting about Albania in the past year or so. I also wonder, and we've touched on this before uh, as well, how much Albania is going to benefit from, uh, of course, the Dua Lipa boom, uh, the song of the summer, uh, a bit of Barbie fever, because you can't mention Dua Lipa without mentioning her Albanian roots. And she's an Albanian citizen now as well. They gave her citizenship. So she's, uh, she's been embraced very much by Albania. She played a gig there quite recently too. And she's spoken out um, in, in, in defense of, uh, of Albanians and ethnic Albanian people. So she's uh, really a, a national hero in, in Albania uh, as, as well as a, a great British pop star. So there are those links as well. I mean, when you consider um, for a small country to... to have uh, an icon, an entertainment icon of, of her standing. Of course, they're going to leverage that and they've been doing it quite successfully. Indeed. Guy, uh, I guess you have a, a plane uh, to, to catch, uh, at least a connection to get to Dubai anyway, uh, en route to Japan, correct? Indeed, I do. Listen, have a very, very uh, good trip. Enjoy the uh, the beaches uh, of uh, Kamakura. We're just coming to the bottom uh, of the That was our guy, Delaney, uh, joining us uh, from Ljubljana. Uh, coming up in the next uh, 30 minutes, we're going to be heading to Istanbul to speak to our correspondent there. And, of course, having a check-in uh, with Spain, of course, uh, election day there. But first, back to London. Emma Nelson's there with the news headlines. Thank you, Tyler. As you've just mentioned, Spain heads to the polls today in what could be its most important election in decades. The country could see a far-right party enter government for the the first time in nearly half a century. Thousands of people have been evacuated from their homes and hotels due to a wildfire on the Greek island of Rhodes. Tens of thousands of Israelis have taken to the streets once again in protest at today's parliamentary debate on a change to the country's judiciary. Thousands of young European waiters, baristas and au pairs could be allowed to come back to the UK for two years under plans to plug gaps in the British workforce. And pedestrian crossings here in the United Kingdom will leave the green man lit up for at least an extra second because the British have become too unfit to cross the road. Walkers currently have 6.1 seconds to cross both lanes of a road at an average speed of 1.2 metres a second. Extending the time by another second will allow the elderly and the overweight to get across safely. And those are the headlines here in London. Back to you, Tyler in Zurich. And I'm not so sure about that extra second really helping <laughs> helping anybody, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's 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 see. I, d- I don't want to have to sort of look at sort of the, the ro- road casualty uh, ticker on that one, but uh, yeah, in- interest, interesting, interesting, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, also, I'm fascinated by this this topic, and and Priska was was nodding there. But Emma, you were you were in Zurich mm. um, a, a few a few weeks. Are, are you missing Zurich? Should I ask that question? Y- yes, but I know the return ticket's already booked. I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can cope. Yes, that's right. You're, yes, so weeks, we should. Yes, today. And, and you and you will you will be doing. Uh, a stint here uh, as well. I think Emma Nelson will be back uh, around the mics uh, here uh, at our HQ here on on Dufasrasse. Yes, well, we discussed this when we, when I saw you that the oh, idea we did, that you, didn't can, we? you can take a holiday even if you have two hours. And, yes. and, I, and I really embrace that mentality that I thought, actually, if you do have a little bit of lake and a little bit of sun, I am absolutely relying on you, Tyler, to sort out the weather for us because if there is a drop of rain, this, this, this may go, yeah, go the wrong off. way. Um, but that idea that if you have just a couple of hours, you can really, really have a holiday and switch off and, and you don't need to sort of go to the other side of the world and, and traipse around with, with bags. You can just 
get on with it quite efficiently. And you can do that really well in Zurich. Now was a bit of the story yesterday as well. Uh, I was here with uh, with Desi, of course, our, our producer and sound engineer in Zurich, and we were doing sort of it was a bit of a turned table, um, big table that it is that you know, Emma. Uh, but I had a, a a I would say a host and a creative uh, and a producer, uh, a gentleman, Adrian Garcia, who runs uh, a, a very interesting podcast uh, where he speaks to the people in the world of media and fashion and creative, etc. So anyway, he was here doing an interview with me, but also uh, we had a, one of those sort of two hour interventions uh, as well, where, of course, and listen, I mean, I mean, you spent a lot of time in Paris and uh, Zurich might as well be on a completely different planet, even though the TGV comes here six or seven times a day, nonstop. They have no concept of it. They just think it's a German speaking version of Geneva. Um, and and, they're, and therefore not so interesting to them. Uh, anyway, I think I, I, I think he was a little bit uh, seduced by the place uh, as well. And, and, and you know that feeling. It has a, a lot more life to it than perhaps people might expect. Oh, God, the phone lines are lighting up right now. Oh, people are like calling angry. in from Geneva, angry from Geneva. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I, sorry, I bet Geneva. you, but listen, I, I listen, I bet you if we went out front, there's probably lots of people from Geneva having a coffee at, at, at our cafe here because they don't have anything like it there. And well, this is it. You When you look at... When you were talking about the, the cinema on the um, on the on the water last night, I thought, well, actually, in Paris they were doing it in the Parc de la Villette. 20, 30 years ago, they had the outdoor evening cinema. Um, but the fact is that they think that nothing, big cities think that, that you know, they're, they're the only ones to do this. And it's lovely to see that Zurich is, at, Zurich uses its space really, really well. And Zurich uses its water incredibly well. Because mm. you don't get very often a big city on a lake where you can do alpine and urban in, in, a, in a, well, in, in a sort of, a, in, in a quick trip on a tram. And you've got good trams. And I like a tram. Marcus Sugal, did you hear that? She said Alpine and Urban. I mean, that's actually not a campaign that I've seen that the city is mounted. And I mean, this this is something that maybe that the city of Zurich or Schweiz Tourismus needs to embrace. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between the guys that are doing it for the city of Zurich and for the Switzerland tourism. But on the other hand, I think that's exactly when you go down to Berkeleyplatz and you look at the lake and you see the mountains. Uh, that's you can't pay for this. This is an experience that you don't get in, in many places around the world. And this, and this is what I was amazed as well when I went to see Barbie the other night. And of course, you have this big screen. You've got the Alps in the distance and you can see still you know, the snow-capped peaks. And they were pinky because the sun was going down. I thought, God, you know, Mattel and Warner Brothers spent a lot of money uh, for that. Maybe maybe just to add this, Emma, um, this this lakeside cinema is here for 20 years already. We're not that far behind than, than to Paris, than might, one might think. Oh, yeah, not, that there's, not that there's any inferiority already complex in Zurich at all, <laughs> is there? No. But, I mean, but Marcus, just answer me this. Why is it that Alpine and Urban don't talk to each other? Because if you've got a good pair of shoes, you can shin up the Udli bag in an hour and well, a half and find yeah, yourself in a mount, up exactly. a mountain. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're right about this but this is this is sort of a very Swiss specific style that's the Cantonese thinking sometimes and sometimes it's negative and sometimes I think it's positive because you can address different people for different reasons and I think the Swiss campaign that they're doing with Switzerland Tourism and Roger Federer is great to take it really out in the world and bring Switzerland to anybody as a great brand but Zurich takes a different spin on going for for different for different target groups and I think they're maybe they're joining up, but right now I think both are doing a great job in differentiating and really bringing Zurich to life that Switzerland tourism can't do. But maybe they come up with that in the more, in, in the next years. But I think Zurich is doing a quite good job right now in putting it up on the landscape for for day travel, for stopover travel, and as you just said, for having three to four or five hours in the sun where nobody really harms you. 
when you listen to Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I am surprised, though, Prisca, that, I mean, you say the Swiss are, yeah, they're, they're very reserved, etc. But I think also the Swiss, and I like this about the country, they're also quite militant. Well, maybe if it's at the body, I mean, you can't, you know, if you go to, normally in a park, I mean, people are not really allowed to blast their tooth. That's the one thing I like no. about the park in Switzerland. They'll come and shut that down pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, it, it was. This is why I think this was an intervention. This Metallica person was paid for by, <laughs> I think, some some Green Party group, some anti-tourism group to do this. And it's going to happen again, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it's maybe like trying out some stay away campaigns yeah, on yeah. a low level scale and see how it works. It didn't really work. I think they embraced it. And well, I, I want to, so here, this is just a little bit of a, a mini poll, um, but I want to ask you, do you get the sense that more people have stayed let's say we're talking about Zurich or whether you're living uh, down the lake uh, in St. Gallen uh, or wherever you may be, but because of just this price spike that we've seen, of course, uh, at, at hotels everywhere, just the cost of travel, the tourism story, the heat as well. And we'll, be, we'll be heading to Istanbul to talk about that in a second. Um, that more people are staying home, Priska, because I, I feel that there's a lot of just, this is again, just very, very basic polling and observations, but a lot of regulars uh, who normally would be away during this school you know, holiday period are actually still in Zurich. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I don't know what your sense is of, this, of the city, but yeah, it's mm -hmm. part of your beat. Yes, I see this as well in my colleagues and friends' Instagram feeds. They're all in the mountains or in Ticino. I think yep. Ticino has a big uh, spike this year as well from Swiss, uh, German Swiss or probably German Swiss tourists. I, I don't think the people from French Switzerland go to Ticino, but I feel that as well. <clears throat> and... Um, I did mostly see tourists from from abroad um, in the city in the last few weeks. There were many, many, many people um, on the Coldplay weekend, which was also Elton John's last concert. So then I thought uh, this tourism for concerts is also uh, a something. thing for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, Marcus, what's your what's your sense of it as well? More people sticking around? I think absolutely. When it's so warm and so nice in Zurich, why do you need to go where everybody else goes if you can stay in Zurich? So the lake is nice. The weather is nice. The restaurants are not that full. You get a reservation in the evening. I just did this yesterday evening very spontaneously. It worked very fine. People are outside. It's almost like feeling on vacation. And yeah, why do you need to travel when you've got vacation on your balcony or on your terrace? Yeah, I, I like that, Emma. You, you, you'll agree back in London as well. Absolutely. But may I just bring back in Roger Federer for a moment? Okay. Um, the, the, if, you, if you must. If, if I must. If, if, should we force him into the program? Um, apparently, he's bound down in Mallorca. Um, and uh, locals have been absolutely delighted to see that he's been on a pedalo out on the sea. Um, and I think that if Zurich could pull a trick like putting Roger Federer on a pedalo, I think it would do so much more for the international reputation of Switzerland than, than any marketing involving nice shoes or, or coffee. Emma, just you wait till next summer. I've got my eye. I've, so I have found a, a, a pedalo. This has nothing to do with sustainability or anything, right. but, the, but it has to do with a good tan. But as I think as Marcus was saying, that so because the, there are pedalos actually not very far uh, from the office here, Emma. So when you come back with the family in August, maybe we should book you one now. But I found one in Poland, which is like the Riva of pedalos, which has 
this you know wonderful mahogany deck and i i think you know with you know precisely arranged towels you could have probably four bodies uh just standing and and you can pimp it up as well you can have a cooler you can have all kinds so it's it no i just think it's just it's like a movable sort of you know tanning raft swimming platform i don't want it to sink though if you've sort of weighed it down with too many people if you if you've got a polish too, too many bottles too many too many bottles, of too many bottles. <laughs> uh else we might catch you before the end of the program it's just gone 10 40 here uh in zurich and uh we it's 11 40 uh, in istanbul where we're heading now uh to speak to our correspondent uh there hannah lucinda smith uh is uh, is in istanbul for us this morning good morning Good morning. Uh, tell us, uh, we were just touching on, on, on the tourism uh, topic. If you, if, certainly if you flip on uh, any of the, uh, the major rolling news channels, uh, a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of uh, tourism ads uh, out there. Um, and it's, on one side, uh, it, it, sort of, it sort of makes you wonder uh, for, for a moment, Hannah, whether uh, they're running these campaigns in the summer because uh, has there been a return of tourism uh, to, uh, to Turkey? Are, are you feeling it? Uh, uh, or, or, or it's just that these, were, these, these ad campaigns were booked a long time ago. They're just reinforcing the power of brand Turkey. Yeah, I mean, it, definitely since the pandemic, there's been a huge bounce back uh, in Turkish tourism. If I'm not wrong, 2019 was their best year to date in terms of you know, the money brought in by tourism. And it's you know, perhaps not back up to that level, but certainly coming back. Um, and part of that, of course, is the, the week Lira that's been bringing people in. So for the past five years, you know, I've seen, you know, campaigns focusing on that, people talking about that, tourists talking about that as a reason why they booked Turkey. Um, but what's happened this year as well is really inflation has just kind of started to cancel that out. And even tourists, I think, are noticing that certain things here in Turkey are really, really expensive. You know, if you think that inflation's been bad, you know, in Europe and in the US, I mean, last October, it hits 80%, according to uh, official statistics here is still at 40%. So, you know, everything is just soaring in price. So it'll be really interesting to see, I think, how the tourism industry goes next year, particularly for the kind of you know, package deals. Indeed. And just just Hannah, on that and speaking of, of the economy, off the back of and even in, let's say, into the run up um, to, to the election, there was much discussion about, you know, what would be happening in terms of economic policy and certainly uh, fiscal leadership uh, in, in the country. And, and sort of certainly whether it was on the eve of, uh, but there's a lot of speculation uh, that that Mehmet Simsek um, would be brought into the cabinet uh, now has been installed. And I'm just wondering, how are the markets feeling? Um, about, of course, someone who, uh, private sector, well-respected, and, and what this is, uh, what this has meant. Yeah, well, I mean, Mehmet Shimshek was a kind of long-standing member of Erdogan's economic team up until 2018, the last elections, uh, the elections before this year, sorry. And, uh, you know, he kind of left the cabinet. That signaled the start of an era where Erdogan really took control of economic policy you know, in an incredibly unorthodox way. You know, he said, that the way to combat inflation was to keep interest rates down and he kind of overruled technocrats repeatedly, sacked central bank governors. And it's been disastrous for the Turkish economy. I mean, uh, if you look at the pro-government press, they talk about you know a five-year period where they encouraged growth and investment. Well, for the average Turk, it's just meant you know, soaring rental and house prices, soaring food prices. You know, people are really struggling. So, you know, that was a big issue going into this year's elections. 
Um, yeah, as you mentioned, Erdogan has now brought Mehmet Shemshek back into his team as the finance minister. He's also brought someone new into into the central bank, certainly not Crony. It's a, it's a young lady uh, who uh, you know has been working in the U.S. for many years. Um, and you know, investors thought maybe this is a return to orthodoxy. But on Thursday, we had the central, uh, the sorry, the second uh, central bank interest rate announcement since those May elections. Again, raising but not raising interest rates as much as investors would like, and analysts have thought they might raise them just 250 base points. Um, you know, analysts were saying you know, they're hoping for about 500. Um, so it's really clear, I think, is, or it's becoming clear to investors um, that you know maybe Mehmet Shimshek and, and his new team don't have as much space as they thought they might, or investors certainly hoped for. Um, and Interestingly, you know, on the other side, what we're seeing as well in, in the same week, last week Erdogan was in the Gulf, touring around Saudi Arabia, Qatar and the UAE, looking for investments, taking Shimshek with him, also taking with him his son-in-law, uh, Seljuk Bayraktar, who is the drone manufacturer, signing drone deals. So, you know, we can see that, you know, Erdogan is still trying to keep this low interest rate policy going. And that's for the simple reason that almost everyone here in Turkey at every level is, is living off credit. And just uh, maybe um, going back a little bit to some promises around the election and, and certainly something that was, was a, a, a very considerable narrative uh, was one, of course, uh, about uh, migration uh, and the pressures, of course, just on the Turkish system. Uh, obviously, much discontent on the part of, of, of Turks, you know, given, uh, of course, the amount of people who have crossed over uh, the borders, who are you know, many, many, of course, seeing that they're um, yeah, being quite heavy on 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 an already stretched system and a lot of of course the spotlight has been on syrians uh and you've been out uh, working on on a piece uh, on this very topic in the the outer suburbs of, of istanbul what's happening there yeah i mean i think the interesting thing and this applies to the economy as well you know actually although the elections are over for this year we're still in an election cycle here in turkey there's local elections coming up in march 2024 Erdogan is very clear that he wants to win back Istanbul, which went to the opposition in, in 2019. Um, and, you know, tackling migration or, or dealing with this huge complaint that most Turks, I would say, have about the number of refugees here. Um, official figures, 3.6 million Syrians, overall about 5 million, it's including Afghans, um, people from various other kind of Middle East, African countries. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the government has been doing since 2019 is basically really cracking down on people who don't have the right papers. I was in Esenyurt, which is on the very outskirts of Istanbul this week. Um, it's got the highest population of um, you know, migrants uh, in Turkey. The, about 15% of its population um, is mostly Syrians who've arrived in the past 10 years. Um, and, you know, locals were saying, well, the strain on, on schools is incredible you know now in state schools you'll have sort of 50 pupils in a classroom you know many of them speaking different languages the teachers having to pay attention it is it's so interesting because in many ways it's the same things that we hear in britain or i guess anywhere else um but yeah i mean the the turkish authorities are really cracking down they've started doing huge police raids i mean we we saw them as we were reporting in essenyurt um going around if anyone didn't have not only you know completely undocumented but also people who didn't have for example, you know, residency papers based in Istanbul, people who've got residency papers from other 
um, cities in Turkey were also being rounded up and put onto buses. And human rights groups, journalists, it's very well documented, and, and Turkey is itself admitting it, that, you know, it's deporting Syrians back into Syria, um, which, you know, in many cases could, could almost be a death sentence. Uh, just uh, Hannah, just before we go, uh, of course, uh, the heat topic, uh, very big, certainly at the extreme ends uh, of, uh, of of the Mediterranean uh, right now, um, a dominating topic in uh, in the Turkish press as well, or do, or do the Turkish newspapers have something else to talk about? Well, I think, you know, it, it is, I have to start by saying it is extremely hot here in Istanbul. It's uh, It got up to 35 this week and it's incredibly humid. But then when I've been reading the papers and, and reading about sort of 48 degrees in Italy, you think, well, oh, you know, we can't complains but I have to say this is incredibly hot and I think again going back to Esenyurt where I was this week this is a kind of almost totally unplanned entirely new district of Istanbul just stuffed with buildings and concrete and apartment blocks no green spaces very few trees um, and it's almost unbearable I mean you know if you don't have a car or you don't have the you know money to be taking a taxi everywhere you're a serious risk of heat stroke, if, you know, especially if you're elderly or, you know, you have heart problems. Um, you know, and I think, it, you know, this experience is raising really big questions about how much longer we can sustain these kind of huge cities unless there's very, very good planning um, for hotter climates built into them. Hannah Lucinda-Smith, our correspondent for us uh, in Istanbul. Thank you very much for that. Uh, just gone uh, almost 10.49 here in Zurich. Uh, we are going to be heading to Spain. Of course, it is election uh, day there uh, at the moment. We'll be heading to Coruña in, in just a second. But I just want, Prisca, you were nodding on this topic. Your newspaper, uh, the Tagus Anzeiger, often is talking about you know, the, the, the heat problem, uh, the, the, just the, the stretches of concrete, uh, even in Zurich. Now, of course, this is a city which is incredibly green and has these sort of wonderful lungs and, and, and arteries that bring nice cool air down from the hills, etc. So we, we do not have the same considerations, but it's still amazing. You were almost nodding at that same point when she when, when Hannah was, was talking um, about the this this the Essenir district uh, of, of outer Istanbul. We have the same problem in Zurich where you have new parts of the city that are planned as well, which it's all concrete, it's all asphalt and just very few trees. You're thinking how did this happen? It's very bizarre. I think I was nodding because I, I can't and can't fathom how you can build a new area of a city. And here in Zurich, it's Europali, uh, as an instance, has almost no trees. Um, we covered this uh, quite a few times. There's like the planning was made earlier and there will be changes. And I think political parties are, I think green liberal parties are very getting very strong in Zurich and are really fighting for for, um, for new laws to also really implement this because you can look around everywhere and um, it's city development. It's almost as if it uh, has started in the last two years, but it has been a huge topic for for de decades. And I think you can look to different places up north also who have other situation, but still are doing a much better job. Marcus, it's incredible when you think about, again, from a sales and marketing perspective uh, as well. If I'm a property developer, uh, you, I want to talk about, you know, the green credentials of my building, but it's it's so sort of fundamental uh, that the landscaping component, that idea that actually, oh, well, maybe, at, you know, at, at the end of it, you know, we've done the building, I'll just, I'll just plant a two-year-old tree as opposed to the expense of actually putting in a 10-year-old tree 
which makes a lot of difference in terms of the canopy it creates, uh, the cooling effect and, and everything else. Yeah, I agree on Europali. I think it's it's one thing where where urbanicity was hitting the Zurich mentality and saying we need something that looks like a skyscraper, we need something like a business district. But hey, if you go to the green city of Singapore, you see there's not, not, not left of a green than anywhere. So from my point of view, this might be done some 15 to 20 years ago. And nowadays I would plan, I hope they plan this wholly different and go for the green side of it, which is much nicer, much more comfortable, much, much more urban than you could think of. Yeah, I bet it's incredible how this this happens time and time again. Uh, Spaniards go to the polls uh, today, uh, and I'm sure there are queues, uh, and of course uh, the tickers and uh, certainly the, the Spanish news uh, outlets uh, are, are already, of course, uh, taking a bit of a punt as to uh, where things are going to head by the end of the day. Um, we're heading to Acaruña uh, right now to speak to uh, Miguel Otero Iglesias. Uh, he's a senior analyst uh, of international policy and economy at Elcano Royal Institute, uh, and also a professor at EI University uh, in Spain. Uh, buenos dias. Uh, good morning. Buenos dias. Good morning. Uh, Miguel, tell us, uh, of course, uh, you know, if you look at um, whether it's, well, any, let's say, the, the major English language uh, news outlets, of course, uh, there is this, this on one side, uh, much fear about uh, a, a swing to the right. Uh, of course, you read other analysis as well, and, and many saying that people, of course, uh, are, are fearful that uh, the Spain that they've known and loved, uh, in a way, throughout centuries, uh, is is under threat, uh, and, and simply that, of course, uh, the current the current ruling government has has not performed as as much of the nation as has liked or would have liked. Um, what is your assessment, uh, being a political analyst, of course? Well, I mean, uh, Spain, as many other societies, is a quite divided, polarized society right now uh, on the left and the right. Uh, the possibility to have a center-right government with the support of uh, the extreme right of Vox is uh, is high. And uh, that, you know, in a country that for a long time didn't really have a, a radical right-wing uh, uh, party, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's uh, new and, and makes a lot of people uh, uh, uncomfortable. But um, this is the trend that we are seeing in most of, of Europe. And Spain is not an exception anymore in that regard. And uh, Vox might get around 15% of of the vote, and that might be enough for the centre-right to have the majority. Uh, but overall, as I say, it's uh, it's going to be a, a tight uh, election because uh, we have a divided country, and uh, the possibility of uh, you know kind of not having a government and having a new elections is is there too. Miguel, just to tell us for uh, people who maybe have not been looking at the at the election map, but not looking at uh, the certainly the map of, of Spain, how does the country uh, divide, uh, and what, what does it look like when we see what are the let's say the more more right of center strongholds uh, of of the nation uh, versus, uh, of course, those that are going to be uh, more more left of more left of center. Is it a traditional metropolitan areas uh, are are much more liberal uh, and it's more the the heartland uh, which which is looking um, more to the right broadly yes but i think there is as well a north and south divide uh, in the north we have catalonia where the pp the center right uh, 
party does not really get many votes. Uh, it's seen as a, as a centralizing or Spanish uh, uh, party. And so either uh, for their own regional parties or in the case of Catalonia, the Socialist Party will do rather well because one of the things that Sanchez has achieved over the past years is to calm down the situation in Catalonia. Uh, and, and so there, you know, uh, the Socialists will win. Uh, while in the south, uh, centre-south, uh, Madrid, Andalusia, etc., um, uh, that Sanchez uh, made a coalition and, and with, with this regionalist or separatist. It looks like, uh, it sounds like, uh, Miguel, uh, we're having a little bit of uh, problems. I think it's probably uh, all of the, the surge uh, in, in various news organizations trying to speak to correspondents. Uh, and maybe it's actually a call for um, uh, maybe also better better infrastructure with the with the telecom system. Uh, that was uh, Miguel Otero Iglesias, uh, senior analyst uh, at, of international economy at, at El Cano, Royal Institute and also EI University in Spain. Sorry we had to lose him, but I think everyone listening, uh, of course, uh, got the gist, of course, of what is happening. Uh, happening there, uh, all eyes on this election, of course, one of the biggest economies uh, in Europe, uh, and of course, what this is going to mean. But uh, please uh, do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day, but of course, tomorrow morning on The Globalist, uh, and also the briefing will be having, uh, of course, full coverage of that. Just before we go, holiday time, Prisca uh, and Marcus, uh, yeah, as you said, we're, we're all st- still in Zurich. Uh, schools are off, people are heading away, but uh, are, are you going to get out of the city, Prisca, or... Yes, I'm going to Denmark. I visit Copenhagen, one of my favorite cities apart from Zurich, and uh, the Danish seaside. Very good. Marcus, uh, yes, a sometime uh, resident of, of Berlin. Are, are you being drawn further north? Or are, are, you, are you staying within these borders, enjoying yeah. the mountains and, or, and, and other things? We're going old school. We tried to test Denmark, but as, yeah, you know, we need more sun, I think. My family, we're going to go back to the Pontinian Islands. Um, just west of Rome and go for Ponza for two weeks and enjoying uh, the beautiful time in Italy on the islands. Yeah, Ponza is, is, is rather sort of uh, hard hard to beat. Uh, Priska, just tell me uh, very quickly, what was the draw? And as you said, I mean, you know, Copenhagen, uh, fantastic city. Many shared similarities to, to Zurich uh, as well, but uh, draw, of, draw of Denmark? Yeah, I uh, I just like the place. I've been several times. I have a friend who lives near Malmö on the Swedish side. And when I visited her, I went to Copenhagen and I decided to, for further stays, we will meet in, on the Danish side. And I like the food and the fashion on people, very nicely dressed. And also city development. I think you can uh, learn all Yeah, much, much to learn uh, from there. And everyone looking fantastic on, on mm-hmm. a bicycle uh, as well. Um, Marcus uh, and uh, Priska, wishing you a very good summer. I'm sure we'll see you around the microphones. Well, probably probably end of end of August uh, at, at at the very at the very least. Uh, also, uh, thanks to uh, Hannah Lucinda Smith, our correspondent uh, in Istanbul. Also, our Guy Deloni uh, in Ljubljana, our Balkans correspondent. Um, and very very briefly, uh, Miguel Otero Iglesias, who was uh, joining us just on our Spanish election coverage. Our producers today, Desiree Bendley and Amin Elson, and our studio manager in London was Callum McLean. Uh, Monocle on Sunday is back next week. Uh, I think Emma is going to be in the driver's uh, seat because uh, I believe I am going to be literally in the driver's seat uh, coming back from our event in Sutrol in Milan next week. But uh, everyone have a very good week and uh, maybe a good start of the summer wherever you are. Goodbye. <laughs>